0: Hey, 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 everyone. It is Nick Bradley here. Welcome to Scale Up for this week. So joining me on the show today is, dare I say it, a partner in crime, another private equity guy, someone who has been the CEO of private equity backed companies, someone who has scaled those companies to some pretty big heights. In fact, he has had a number of large acquisitions, some of them over the billion dollar mark. My guest today is Adam Coffey. Now, if you haven't heard of Adam, I've mentioned him on the show previously because he is the author of two amazing books. The first one that he wrote a couple of years back is called The Private Equity Playbook that was released in 2019. And then more recently, he has written the book, The Exit Strategy Playbook, which everyone here knows is one of my favorite topics. And that was released in 2021. Now, when I first read private equity playbook i was like thank god someone has written something that is practical comes from the perspective of a ceo and operator in a business and for the first time is not a damn academic textbook in fact you can pick up this book and you can read it on a three to four hour flight from say london to new york and you are going to get a heap of information about how the world of private equity works and indeed His second book is very similar. Again, it's not a massive academic thing that you're going to get in business school. It's practical tips and advice about how you can position your business to have a successful exit. So today on the show, we are going to get into all that and more. We're also going to talk about Adam's new book that is coming out, which is much more focused on how you can scale a business from, say, 100K all the way up to that Glorious billion mark.
1: Most private equity firms do a a pretty poor job of really laying out what the future will look like. Part of that is because, hey, we're still dating. I don't own your company yet. I'm not going to tell you how hard it's going to be and how much harder you need to work.
0: But just a little bit of background on Adam before we kick off. So, over the past 21 years, he has been the president and CEO of three US based private equity companies, service based companies, all in different industries. Two of the three he has built to achieve enterprise values of over a billion dollars he's completed something like 58 acquisitions and this is a really interesting one throughout his career he has a proven track record of some very very big returns for shareholders in fact his lifetime average is what we call a five times moic which is a multiple invested capital which basically means that the businesses that he has been in He has 5X them in terms of all the capital that's been deployed into them to scale them to some of those large numbers I just mentioned. So sit back and enjoy this. We riff, we have some fun, we have a laugh, we talk about the most important things that you need to have in place to exit your company. This is one of the fun episodes, particularly if you're on that journey. And just to say from the outset, and we joke about this on the show, Adam wants this to be the number one downloaded episode of Scale Up of all time. So if you enjoy it, make sure you share it with your friends, your colleagues, your other business associates.
1: Let's get in there and bend the growth curve and let's sell a trajectory rather than selling Kool-Aid and hockey stick projections. Let's make it happen.
0: So there we have it. Welcome to Scale Up with Nick Bradley, Adam Coffee. Hey, everybody, it is Nick Bradley here. Welcome to scale up for another week. Now I'm going to apologize in advance to those people who cannot stand me geeking out about private equity transactions exits because I do it too often these days, I know. But I've got another person on here who has a very decorated career in that space, has been involved in companies that have been valued at over a billion dollars multiple times. He's written a couple of amazing books. One of them here is the Private Equity Playbook, and the more recent one is the Exit Strategy Playbook. Both are excellent. We were joking before I pressed record that this is the thinnest book and probably the most valuable book on private equity that I've ever read. So I'd like to welcome to the show today, Adam Coffey. Welcome, hey, sir.
1: Nick. It's good to be here. Hello to all your listeners out there. It's uh, it's Let's get this
0: on. Let's do this. Shall we have some fun? Okay, Absolutely. so so another private equity guy talking to another private equity guy. I'm just gonna say out front, this is gonna be super valuable, guys. We we said off offline, right, before we press record, that we want this episode to be the number one out of three hundred and forty odd episodes. That's of my this goal. Show. That's my goal. So so we're gonna deliver a heap of value over the next half an hour or so. So let's kick it off, Adam. So so your background, how did you get into you know exiting companies, private equity? Let's go right back to the very beginning.
1: Well, I, I'll tell you, you know, four things for me in my career when I meet people for the first time, you know, I, I shaped my career. I was a veteran in the United States Army, so military taught me something about teamwork, discipline, leadership as a young man. I built off of those experiences with a, a first career in engineering. Engineering made me a meticulous planner. I think then the third thing that impacted my life was really uh, uh, the Fortune 500 world. So I worked for Jack Welch. During the oh, what cool. I call the Camelot era of GE, 1991 to 2001, it was the growth years. There was no tech yet. GE was the world's most admired company. It was the world's largest company. Jack was the world's most you know admired CEO. Stock was splitting in this hundred-year-old company literally every three years. So wow. you've got the largest company on the planet that's doubling in size every three years under jack's you know what
0: about about 25 30 years ago i read his first book i think it was called from the Guts or something like that and it was it was awesome like some stuff in there was pretty radical at the time but anyway i'll I'll jump just wanted to share it no absolutely
1: so for me (laughs) What a great time to be a young man, to learn how to run a business and be a turnaround guy inside the great GE of the Jack Welsh Camelot era. So that's where I learned how to run a business. And then finally, 21 years as a CEO building three platforms for nine different private equity sponsors, I bought 58 companies doing buy and builds and had billions of dollars in, in exits that certainly gave me the background in private equity. But I always felt like, you know, I wasn't a private equity guy. You know, I relate to entrepreneurs. I've held every job you can hold in a service company, including driving a truck. I mean, I literally worked my way up the the, the org chart to the top and then built three big companies. And I think those experiences are are probably call it the most informative that lead to, to, to a podcast. So like why this.
0: why private equity? So let's let's jump from the transition from GE, which I imagine you know if you're good at GE, because I know how aggressive they were with performance management or assertive maybe. Why leave? Because you know that must be the pathway to a pretty compelling career in its own. Well, right. that
1: was that was a hard question. Talk about a crossroads in a career. So literally, I'm at GE. I'm an up and comer. You know, ten years in a row, Code One performer. Um, you know, a player, whatever you want to call it, trying to reinvent yourself every year. It was hard to do, but I had a, I had a mentorship team within GE. And as I'm looking at stay at GE, you know, one of a thousand general managers, you know, leave, GE and be a CEO for the first time of a much smaller company. And the best advice I ever got was from a GE employee, GE mentor, former professional football player, uh, and and his words that still ring in my head to this day, Adam, once a president, always a president. Leave GE, go be president of a company because GE will never see you as a president because of how you kind of came up through the ranks until you go be one somewhere else. And it was great advice. I wound up leaving three months before Jack did ultimately. And then everybody who was in the running to be a GE CEO at the time that didn't get the job left to go run other companies. And then my phone started ringing off the hook. It's like, Hey, Adam, come run a service business for me. Hey, Adam, come run a service business for me. You know, and it was, it was kind of comical, but I, I, uh, I never went back. I, I decided that in the Fortune five hundred world, um, you know, that that I wasn't I, I, I don't know. I wasn't going to have as much fun, you know, in a middle market. Well, so
0: you get stuck. I mean, like, you know, even if you get
1: leadership I... style, I love to lead from the trenches and, and you know, I love being close to employees. And, and so how I build a company and build culture by focusing first on employees and culture and then revenue following later, it just works kind of better in the middle market. And I, I love the middle market space.
0: You didn't obviously know that at the time, right? So that I didn't.
1: Well, matter of fact, I didn't even know what the hell private equity was at the time. I mean, you go back twenty-three years ago now, and at that time, there were about fifteen hundred private equity firms on the planet. There was six hundred billion in assets under management during my twenty-one year run. I've seen private equity explode—five trillion plus in assets under management and six thousand plus firms. And depending on how you measure all that, well, the the world of private equity. Yeah, you know, I was this. chasing title and money. That's what I was chasing. When I, I left PE,
0: money. it was um uh, just under five thousand firms. You know how they, they record these things in a stupid way, but regardless, five thousand. They're saying it's now eight thousand, right? And okay. you know why? I- Do you know why? Because they're not really private equity firms. They just- yeah. <laughs> they're just kind of search funds <laughs> and everything else. But let's talk about that first that first sort of six months to twelve months. So you've gone into a private equity backed service business i believe wasn't it the first one yes yeah right. how was that experience was it like a duck to water for you or was it you know was it like something easy it, you know, or I, did you have to kind of get into the whole rhythm of it
1: it it was a duck to water for me um you know i was a turnaround guy within ge so i was used to fixing okay. broken things and when i i get to my first company it was a a, a public company taken private Amidst CEO investigations, oh you know, SEC investigations shareholder, you know, it was just all it was a mess. There were times where I thought, boy, I don't know if I can save this one. You know, the, the, the patient <laughs> barely has a pulse. You know, we, we might need to put chains on the doors here, but I did get it turned around. So I mean, I think the I focused so much heavily on the work that private equity was secondary. Got and it. and as we we turned that company around and made you know kind of made that turn from hemorrhaging cash negative you know ebitda to to positive it was like you know the, the, i had a lot of leeway and i had a lot of help you know too from a, a, a lot of great people back in that day so i i did what most people do first time i i brought a lot of people from ge with me and it's like come yeah. help me fix this thing and we were we were successful, and so my first run with with private equity was a, a good one. That company ultimately was sold to Berkshire, later became a division of Aramark, and I, I think it's now been spun out of Aramark. It's gone back private again, but it, it was a great first experience. Smaller company than obviously what I was running at GE, but it was it was just a, a classic turnaround. And so I was so focused on the work to be done that I wasn't really aware of who I was doing it for.
0: (laughs) Well, also there's, you know, and this is why I joked again before we press record that, um, you know some private equity firms love me some hate me but the reason for that is there are different types of private equity firms right you can get ones that are more supportive you know you can get other ones that just want to look at spreadsheets all the time so it sounds in this situation that they trusted you to come in there and get the job done and didn't get too involved and obviously if the well it was before through,
1: they were going to put the, the the locks on the door this was a firm that bought distressed assets and they right. had already sold off pieces of what they bought to recover their investment what they were left with was kind of eh this is the gravy. If we can make it work, it's going to be a home run. If not, we already, oh, right. returned, Even you know, our, our capital. So it was, you know, Hey, go ahead, kids, see what you got. Let's, let's see what you can do. So it was a lot of fun actually, cool. you know, it was fun times. And so it,
0: advice for people going through, through this. So let's say, say you've got a, a business that you've grown and you know, it's getting up into the mid-market range. You know, you're over five million EBITDA, something like that. You're going to get a good valuation. What's what's some advice that you give to a founder that's considering this transition? First and foremost, the the potential exit to a private equity firm, and then once they've done that, you know, what are some of the considerations they need to understand to be successful in that environment if they've never been in that environment before?
1: Yeah, these are great questions, and I could probably talk for days. You no, know, I'm sure. I'm, <laughs> one of them. You know, what when. when When I think about the typical middle market sale process, what usually happens, and and again, as as an acquirer of companies building strategic platforms, I bought 58 companies. So I've seen a lot of these guys, you know, at that size, you know, I buy them and put them together and build empires. But what I often see is call it your typical hockey stick projections. Hey, look, my company's been growing like this. Magically, when you buy it, it's gonna do things it's never done before. So drink my Kool-Aid, here's what I'm selling, and, you know, it's a magically great company that I want you to value based on, you know, three years from now projections. And so what I usually tell entrepreneurs that I'm coaching today is, let's get in there and bend the growth curve and let's sell a trajectory rather than selling Kool-Aid and hockey stick projections. Let's make it happen. Let's think about doing some early acquisitions, to demonstrate and prove to a, a potential buyer that we can be a platform, that we can do an add-on acquisition. Let's talk about career progression and what's going to happen to that entrepreneur. Are they going to stay the course or are they going to get their wheelbarrow full of gold ingots and then just kind of walk out the back door? You know, Let's make sure we've got a succession plan in place. Let's make sure we've got a solid leadership team. Let's make sure we're prepared for diligence. Let's do sell-side Q of E's. Let's know what we have and what we're going to be bringing to the table, let's make sure our brand resonates, you know, in and make sure that you know we we have a company that looks like a private equity backed platform. Love it. If before our, our before export, you're saying before. this is got it, and, and so and, and, it. and what what I think is is you can really I think PE I think founders leave too much money on the table because they assume their own personal expertise in building a business somehow translates to making them an expert at selling the business. And I've got news for you founders, just because your phone rings and a buy side advisor or a PE firm is on the other side, given there's 8,000 firms out there, chances are likely that is not your buyer that you just picked up the phone and and said hello to, um, you know, so you, you need to match your goals and objectives with the buyer universe you need to make sure you're aligned. You want to work with people who understand your business. I saw a scary statistic just this morning, um, and I used it in writing a, an article for Forbes for for next month. And you know, it, it talked about just the fact that founder transitions to PE. Fifteen percent of founders are let go immediately. Those are the guys who plan to leave. That yep. that told people they were going to leave. Fifty eight percent don't survive the next two years, 73% of founders who transition to private equity do not survive the hold period. And there's a lot of reasons for that. And if you unpack some of that, it's really because a founder does not understand what they're signing up for. Hey, I just got a big payday. I just took all this gold and stuck it in in my tree. You got to be kidding me. You want me to work harder? I'm ready to slow down and enjoy and smell the roses. And it's like, you know, private equity is the epitome of sport as a profession, you know, and this is the highest level you can play. And it's not time to check out, it's time to double down. So if you think you're going to sell your business and just skate for the next five years, I got news for you, you're not going to last the next five years. So I think there needs to be more education. And I understand that's why I wrote the private equity playbook was to start educating. And, And I tell you that most private equity firms do a, a pretty poor job of really laying out what the future will look like. Part of that is because, Hey, we're still dating. I don't own your company yet. I'm not going to tell you how hard it's going to be and how much harder you need to work. I got to get <laughs> to know you. We got to date a well, little there's bit. There's also,
0: there's something else behind the scenes there. I was, I was the guy doing a lot of those transactions for PE firms for a while, as I'm sure you have. And like, you know, I was, I, my, my sort of result, if you like, my success was on buying the company as cheaply as I can get it. Right locking sure. locking the, the team in with with certain terms and then looking at the return on invested capital right so if i'm going to get like a three four five times on that right i want to make sure that i'm getting the platform at a certain point right so it's interesting absolutely. but but no one knows this you're 100 percent right and and one thing someone said this to me the other day which i thought was interesting he said oh, i don't want to sell my business to private equity i said but you want to sell your business you want to exit in the next few years it's going to be an eight figure sum oh yeah absolutely but i don't not private equity and then I said, you realize that 80% of transactions right now are private equity. They're not directly private equity. They might be a private equity firm or a private equity backed strategic. Strategic, yeah. But it doesn't matter, right? At the end of the day, you've got private equity touching the majority of exits. And the guy's yeah. face, you should have seen it, Adam. was like, yeah. you're kidding me. Yeah, yeah. he,
1: changed, yeah. So, he changed, so, his,
0: so, changed his turn very quickly.
1: <laughs> I, I have to tell you, since that first book came out, I have been giving rooms filled with what I'll call Very astute founders and business owners and people, executives. I've been giving them the same 10 question basic multiple choice quiz on private equity. Every answer is in my first book, which you can read in like four and a half hours. And, you know, basic, basic questions. And I gotta tell you, to this day, I've now given that test thousands of times to thousands of people. And you know, 90% of the people in the room flunk. They fail. They've heard the term but they really don't know what, what it means or how it works. And they really need to get educated for the reason you just mentioned with 80% of all deals going to private equity or private equity backed strategics. You really need to understand how that universe works in order to maximize your own potential by working within its framework, which is something that that I've been teaching people on, uh, on, on how to do. And I think there's just such a lack of understanding that that's, you know what unfortunately what happens is that first call comes in, someone says, okay, they wind up selling. Probably wasn't the optimal buyer, but but then they either have a it's a hit or miss. You know, did I have a good experience or not? And if you talk to people who sold the private equity, half of them will say, worst experience of my life, the other half will say, Yeah, I made a lot of money. But yeah, but it's because they didn't put any forethought, you know, think of all the effort that goes into building your business. You need to put some effort into selling your business as well, and that includes getting educated about who that buyer is and preparing well
0: in advance, right? And you know, not not rushing It's funny, it's 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 because I work with a number of different businesses, as you know, and a lot of them, the initial pathway, right, that they were going to go down was hire hire an investment banker, broker if they're a bit small, but investment banker, uh, and then literally go out and put the business on the market, right not doing any work no quality of earnings analysis no due diligence none of the kind of kicking the tires on the things that can affect any multiple expansion or any of that sort of stuff and then they go out there they go through a process they don't sell the company or they get a valuation which is significantly lower and then they go back and say oh it was a shit process oh investment bankers suck (laughs) right yeah yeah, yeah. it's interesting but isn't isn't it interesting though isn't it because because you think about it you're right if you build a great business defined by the fact that maybe it's giving you a good lifestyle or whatever that is for you. It doesn't mean it's transferable, right? It doesn't mean that it's built in a way that can be a platform for someone else to drive growth from. And I think that's the big distinction that needs to be understood here. If you want to exit your business for the highest amount of money, right? Highest multiple, all that sort of stuff, you've got to have it so it's it's financially strong, but it's also got to have that transfer value as well.
1: It it, it does. It Its DNA has to align well with what the buyers are looking for. Mm. And there's always a risk equation so the more you can do to demonstrate that your business has legs and can grow at a sustained 30% compound annual growth rate so that you can get that mythical 4 or 5 times moic you know in 5 years for the next guy you know if you're selling hockey stick projections that's risk the risk of it happening is high. Therefore, the buyer is going to not pay a premium multiple for that. When a business is prepared, when they understand what the buyer is looking for, when they've taken, you know, call it the a couple of years in advance of exit to really get geared up for that sale to maximize their potential, they are de-risking the future platform for the buyer, and the buyer will stretch, and the buyer will pay up. And one of the things I was able, able to do always was, kind of set the market for a new valuation level mm, for the okay, company that I I was selling because it was a foregone conclusion that all you had to do was buy it, own it. And in five years, it was going to do exactly what you needed it to do because it already was, it already had that 30%, you know, compound annual growth rate. It already was a platform that was acquiring companies. It had capability. It had a pipeline. It knew how to maximize price and organic growth. And, and so When you can build the better business and demonstrate it's a better business, you'll be rewarded for that effort. And too often people are building the business and they just wake up today and say, Nick, today I'm gonna sell. And they've done nothing to prepare, nothing to maximize. I wanna be out in six months and I want the most money. And it's like, those people leave so much money on the table because they're not prepared.
0: And just to be clear here when we say so much money on the table here just to give you a bit of a a bit of math fun right let's say a business is doing 10 million ebitda and it's poorly structured poorly built excuse me that might sell for 50 million if you're lucky if it's beautifully put together and we're going to go through exactly what you mean by this in a second let's say it sells for 10 times ebitda there's a 50 million swing on that deal right incredible right i mean what, what what investment in the world Like, you know, I often say that if you sell your business successfully, there is no other financial event that you're ever going to get in your life, which is as good as that, unless you do it again, of course.
1: <laughs> yes. Well, that that's always my theory too, is, is what if you are an entrepreneur, unless you are just 75 and ready to, to, to go sit in a hammock for the rest of your life, w- w- why just sell your business once when you can sell it twice or three times, or my personal record, five times in 13 years and four months and a few days? You know, it, it's like first somebody gives you a pile of money, Now you gotta do something with that. You need to invest that. Well, it's great to have asset diversification and we all need that. And and, and it's important to our lives as we get older, but why just walk away from something that you're an expert in, become a rollover investor, do it again, do it with a partner, use their capital to accelerate your growth, to accelerate your own M&A activity and get a second bite that's bigger than the first. You know, so that that's where it's fun. Yep. It's fun when you get a second bite, a third bite. That that that's where generational wealth is truly created.
0: So let's. We did say at the very beginning of this, we want to make this the number one downloaded show. So what we need to do now, Adam. So we need to <laughs> we need to unpack the playbook here a little bit. So let's start with, okay, a business that is built beautifully. The foundations are in place. All that. What are the characteristics? If you went in and said, okay, you've got to do this, 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 and this. Generally, right. What what are those things? What are those different things that the business needs to look like?
1: so it it needs to have a, a professional management team. you know okay. it, it, it's it's not just a founder who's micromanaging everything. Um that again equates to risk. if if a company truly wants to build, and, and be a platform and sell for maximum amount of money. It needs to have a leadership team. It needs to have process. It needs to have a scalable platform. It needs to have excellent branding, a good presence. You know, it it, it needs to be, you know, it needs to be a a business that projects an ability to operate. I call it fighting below your weight class. You know, if, if that leadership team looks like, uses the same kinds of process and procedures that a much bigger company you know i would expect to see in a much larger company i look at that company and say boy this company has legs that's a leadership team that's fighting below their weight class they may be 30 million in revenue today but i can see them managing a 100 million dollar plus business or if they're 100 million managing a 200 300 400 million dollar business so they need to be professionalized and you know a piece of that is 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 strong in process strong with depth in the leadership team Um, And, you know, really in command of its metrics and its numbers and understanding, you know, its own revenue engine and, you know, hey, I'm I'm a construction company and here's my backlog and my average bid size, my days to award, and here's my close rate. And once I get it to, you know, from bid to backlog, here's how long it takes for that revenue, you know. Bid to burn, they call it to burn. Yeah. And here's when my jobs start. And it's like here's my sophistication level and how I manage the business. I, I I'm I'm using data. I'm I'm an informed you know thinker. I'm I'm a I'm an industry leader. You know, there's also the branding and in, in imagery then too. Every company that I've run and built, I've changed the brand. And I think entrepreneurs get really hung up on on the name of their business. Us, oh, my daddy's name, you know, or it's, it's my dog's <laughs> name. And it's like, if I change my name, everyone will leave. And, you know, I've rebranded, you know, big companies every time. And, you know, frankly, customers don't care unless you're Coca-Cola, you know, they don't care, especially if you're a B2B business. What was the it's reason like, Adam
0: for doing the rebrandings out of curiosity? Was so, it because they were too associated with a family or a name or a personal brand? Let, or let
1: me give you a classic, you know, Go this is it. like textbook classic. So, Business started in the 1940s by a family. It was the founder's initials, William E. Bloomfield. So he what? called it Web Service Company, and it was a commercial laundry company. And he started it in the 1940s before there was an internet, before we had any consciousness. Of hold on, so he
0: called it Web Service Company? In 1947. And it was and a laundry?
1: It was a laundry company. Oh. <laughs> I get there in 2003... And the first generation literally is passing away. They're in their 80s. The second generation is getting to retirement age, no third generation active in the business. And I'm talking about every time I'm thinking about raising capital, every time I'm going out to do things, I'm having to explain why the hell our laundry company is called web service company. You're an internet laundry company, huh? And I'm like, no, no, no. And so I, I went to them and I said, look, you know, this is look, I, I appreciate that you love the name and it's your dad's initials, but the fact of the matter is you know, it confuses the marketplace. We need to change this. We're a laundry company, so I changed it to Wash Multifamily Laundry, washlaundry.com. It's like, this is who we are, this is what we do. And yeah, you know, so that's a classic where the the name that we had you know the, the meaning had changed over time. We weren't going to win that battle. And they were so afraid that they were going to lose 70 years worth of brand equity and, and customers that, that they wanted to have hundreds of people in a call center. First of all, they wouldn't let me do it until I brought private equity in the first time. So I, I got the family office out, bring in private equity. And first thing I do is change the name. We, we had all these people in call centers waiting for the phone to ring. And literally, no one called, no one cared. It was you know, 70,000 customer <laughs> locations across North America, and, and nobody cared. So, I mean, that in that case, the brand was causing confusion. There are other times where I changed it because it was a damaged brand. So, you know, another company that I ran, they had a name, and a customer's experience was either they loved it or they hated it. And I called it a damaged brand, and those visceral reactions to the name of the company—I love you, I hate you—weren't going to change. So I created a new brand that nobody yet loved and nobody yet hated, Got and it. so it gave me a chance. I call that a damaged brand. It gave me a chance to start over, and and so I, I see this all the time with entrepreneurs. You know, and it, it's a it's a hurdle sometimes when you're doing a buy and build. What are you going to do with my name? You know, I, I like my name. My customers like my name. Um, but I, I think branding is definitely a piece of this. And you know, I, I, when I teach this at universities, I use Apple and Beats Audio as kind of the proxy for branding. And I say, I've been also doing this other survey. 90% of the people in any room I go to, if I say, do you own an Apple product? Raise your hand. Hands go up. And then I ask them a follow-up question. How many of you people who own an Apple product still have the box? It came in hiding in your closet somewhere. 90% of those people keep these boxes because they're pretty and we like them. And I tell people we need to make our brand and our headquarters an Apple box because it's the single largest return on investment we're going to get in our company. Give you an example. I was running a company with about $125 million of EBITDA. And I'm convinced that I get at least one turn when I have a sexy brand and a sexy culture yep. And first of all, I can attract better talent and keep it. But when I take a laundry company out to market, what does the buyer look for? They're like, I'm expecting a dumpy-ass old building because it's a laundry company. When they walk into my world headquarters and they see it bleeding of culture and they see this cool environment, you know, their human nature is to go down to their spreadsheets and say, what is this? What's the EBITDA? What is the the range that this company and this industry trades at. And if they found a dumpy ass building, they just go to their offer column. But in my world, they go, wow, I wasn't expecting this. What's the EBITDA? What's the multiple the industry trades at? And what's the premium I'm going to have to pay to take this off the market before somebody else sees it? Because I want to buy this cool company. It'll look good in my LP portfolio review and i you know it'll help me packaging and
0: positioning we're going to get into that in a second so we've got at the moment people or particularly particularly the idea of having a professional leadership team we've touched on brand you mentioned culture at the very beginning of this conversation and you mentioned it again how do you how do you um, approach culture particularly if you're going into a business where there is something established but it might not be the sort of culture that you think's appropriate to drive performance or turnarounds? How do you Boy, story change Story of my that?
1: life. You know, story of my life. So I, I, I go into the, the refrigeration and HVAC company yep. and turnover, employee turnover is 42% when I get Oof. there. And I'm thinking, wow. how can you grow a company when half your workforce is turning over every year? Well, you can't, that's the secret, right? So <laughs> I've learned in, I've learned in service businesses that you can't manage revenue. Revenue is an output. It starts with if I have a strong culture, I get an engaged workforce. They take care of customers. Customers give us more stuff. Revenue rains from the skies. So that's my secret formula. I come into a company. I don't care about revenue. I don't manage revenue. That's an output. I start by building the engine, and in a service business, it's going to start with culture. And in today, I was a maverick when I was doing this twenty years ago, but in today's world. Boy, after the great resignation and everybody wanting to work at home, it's like, if you want to get employees, if your growth requires employees, you darn well better have a good culture and you better take care of people. Because if you don't, you're not going to be able to fill open jobs. And so I start with culture. Within 12 months, I was able to get that turnover from 42% down into the low 20s. Within about 18 months, it's in the teens. And you got to remember that it was a trades-based business and trades-based businesses usually do have turnover around 30%. I didn't learn this till I got there. There's such a shortage of tradespeople, people like electricians, plumbers, yeah, yeah. HVAC technicians. Companies just throw money and vehicles and tools at them and they're stealing each other's people because there's millions of people short around the globe because we told everybody 30 years ago, you must go to college. So it helps you attract talent, retain talent, and it, it sets you up for success. Culture matters, and I think this generation gets that finally. But I was a little bit of a maverick, you know, back when I was focused on on culture. And part of that goes back to the the, the being a servant leader in in the military. You know, it's taking care of people, getting them fired up to wanna wanna you know a, a strive for a shared aspiration. So I, I think of like President Barack Obama. What did President Obama sell us? He sold our country hope. What the hell is hope? You can't put hope in a box. You can't put it on a shelf. He could articulate a vision and get others to aspire to some shared aspiration that was way out there. And he became president. Ronald Reagan could do that as well. That way I'm covering both political parties over here. But (laughs) you know, so you got to have a message that resonates with people. You invest and build a strong culture. And I promise you, revenue will follow.
0: So on that, so vision, vision aligned to things like values. Did you change the values in the company or did you just refine? I
1: I came in and articulated a vision and I was a transparent leader, which I also think is important to success. So here's another little tidbit, Nick, for all of your founders out there. Everybody thinks it needs to be a state secret that I'm going to sell my company. And, and so what happens is I can't bring them to my cool culture. I can't immerse them in my great company that I built. I got to hide it in a crappy looking hotel conference room. And I got to be secretive about it because I can't let anybody know I'm going to sell the company. They're all going to quit and leave. I come into a company and on day one, I tell them, I'm going to build a billion dollar business. To do that, we are going to kick out shareholders every five years. I'm going to bring in, you know, we're this size. And in the next five years, we're going to grow to this size and I'm going to bring in a new set of shareholders and I'm going to use their money to grow the business and invest in the business. And then we're going to get to this size and then I'm going to kick them out again. And so I come in with a transparent message of what I'm building, why it will benefit them and how it will give me the money I need to invest in their future, to invest in growth, to help them with their careers, with raises, with education, with new trucks, whatever the case may be. And I, I'm so transparent about it that when it's time to sell, I actually would announce I'm having a dress up day, potential potential buyers are coming in, and I want to show off my headquarters and my sexy Apple box, and I want to march these people around so they can get excited about what we've built, and then they'll pay too much for the company, and you know, then I'll work on their behalf to get someone else to pay too much down the road when we're much bigger. But so I was transparent about it. I didn't God. hide in conference rooms. And I think it's important. that Yeah, I like that as well.
0: Teacher- I think because a lot of the people that I, I kind of work with, they do, they try and say, oh, listen, we can't tell anybody because they're all going to get upset and worried about their jobs and all these sort of things. How do you handle, handle that question or that objection if that comes up? So I, I
1: talk about the fact that, you know, a public company is bought and sold every day. I can go online and I can buy a share of, you know, Ford Motor Company and I can hold it for a minute, five hours, five years. I have total instant liquidity. I can buy and sell at any time. Private companies with institutional investors have no market. And so they, you know, their I give them an education. Their fund is going to exist for 10 years. And in the first five years, they're going to buy companies. In the middle, they're going to fix them up. And in the last five years, they're going to have to sell them to return the capital to their shareholders. So where a private, you know, public companies bought and sold every day, a private company is bought and sold about every five years. It's really not a big deal. You know, I'm going to need different amounts of capital as I'm growing the business. I want to use other people's money and syndications of banks. And it's like, this is the private capital structure. Our ultimate goal and objective is billion dollar public company, eventually, of which you can be a shareholder. But until we get there, we're going to need capital. And this is how capital works. So I, I educate them to the point to where a sale is a non-event. But I do this when I get there on day one, you know, three or four years before I'm going to actually run a process. By the time I do, I'm just reinforcing what I've been telling them. And I make sure that they know every number in the company. It's like, here's our revenue. Here's our EBITDA. They don't know what EBITDA is. That's OK. But they know how much we got. And I and I, I usually, you know, try to educate, hey, it's earnings before I buy stuff. It's before I buy trucks and I open plants and I, you know, buy tools. It's before I invest in you. And so I I try to give the information. You know, when I would hold, hold a town hall meeting, I'd have 3,000 employees in a company. I'd get more than 1,000 people calling in for my town halls. And then we record them and other people could listen later because not everybody was working at the time or able, but literally a thousand, you know, one third of my workforce every month would just pull over on the side of the road for 15 minutes and listen to the old man drone on. And as a result of that, I connected with people, I built a strong culture, they understood what the ramifications of being owned by private capital entailed. And they could see the investments that were being made. So I also would tell you that just in general, private equity gets a bad rap in the news, in the press. You always hear about the bad things that are going on. There are 8,000 firms. There's good, there's bad, there's everything in the middle because it's a big universe of potential buyers. But there's some people out there who actually buy distressed assets on purpose. And there's people who buy good companies and they want to see growth happen. And when other companies were laying people off, I'm hiring people because I'm growing. And that side of the story never gets told in the press. And 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 the other thing
0: also, like just to say this, like, you know, when you when you're transparent around these sort of things, the people who aren't going to stay or want to be on the bus are going to go anyway. So in many cases, you are filtering out the ones that actually believe in that vision and want to stay. And it's best to know best to know that early right you don't want to kind of be mucking around for the first 18 months and you've still got people there who are trying to make a decision
1: and and what i find is by being transparent they're prepared for the journey and it's less of a shock when that founder keeps it quiet first of all he didn't get maximum value because he didn't get his buyer universe engaging with his culture and his company and so he left money on the table there but you know, when, when when it finally does happen, then they come and tell everybody, oh, I sold the company yesterday. It's a bigger shock to, the I, I think, the, the psyche of the employees than to just have been transparent up front and say, hey, listen, here's my vision for our company. And you're a piece of that. And here's why it works for you. And help me take the hill. Buy my box of hope you know
0: and <laughs> let's get this
1: done so, so let's do I a couple more then. engagement
0: let's do a couple more so we've got so far we've talked about the importance of people in leadership we've talked about culture we've talked about brand what else what else what does a business need to be so prepared? systems
1: and process we also talked about that you know and and having a management system in place and being data driven and reliant on numbers to make decisions it's not oh i know i look i feel it's what does the data tell us being a knowledgeable founder who can interact with that universe of potential buyers and you know, and again another reason why i wrote the books was so that they could have a competent conversation because so many times that i sit at the table with founders and when the the table finally turns and someone says do you have any questions for us crickets you could hear the silence because no one you know no one knows what even to ask And so, you know, it's, I, I teach people, I think it's important to show and demonstrate, look, I understand private equity. You know, I understand how your world works. And I understand how I fit into that. And then we can have a higher level conversation than someone who, doesn't have any clue what private equity is. So I think buyers focus a lot on building their companies. Sometimes they need to focus a little bit more on the messaging and the interaction with the buyer universe. But part of that is demonstrating to the buyer universe that you're a competent business person who's got a system in place here's my system of continuous improvement. I don't care what kind of system it is. I don't care if you're using EOS or some other, you know, branded system that's out there. All I care about is do we have a system? Are we data-driven? Do we try to make decisions not just based on feel, but we have data and intent in our actions? And the more I can demonstrate that I am that company that, that will be successful in their environment. The more they're going to pay and the 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 quicker they're going to move to make sure they wrap up that asset. You know, the last time I sold a company, the entire deal was done in three weeks. And we had hired a banker. We never gave one management meeting because I did a good enough job educating the buyer universe. I did the circuit. I'm going to the conferences that are being held by investment bankers I'm <laughs> presenting my pitch deck I'm you know people were then being in, introduced you know and and you're having your little speed dating rounds and then i'm inviting them to come to my company without my pe guys present without an investment banker hired let me show you what i've built spend half a day with me by the time we got ready to market the company i had five people walking in with laydown offers saying i want to own this i know i got to clear the market here's my market clearing price I'll affirm my price in 2 weeks of diligence and I'll close it in the 3rd week and I'll pay 100% cash. I'll finance it later. Those were the kind of Perfect. offers we were getting. Perfect. And you do that by demonstrating
0: and know, also all of taking these some control of the process, right? All I right. want to ask a final kind of question here because I'm really curious about this. How if you build a company the way you're suggesting here, right? And and the founder and someone like you sitting at the table, the board, whatever that is, is very well versed in this. What's the role of going out to market through an investment banker? Does it have to happen? I mean, because if you've got if you've gone out there and done what you just said, I know there's the idea that putting it out there and doing some sort of auction process maybe gives you a bigger marketplace. But also there's a drawback to that. What's your view? Do you always have to go and use someone like that or can you manage the process yourself? So
1: I recommend in my books always that a person hires an investment banker. Um, why? Why? Mm. You know, every time someone sells a house, they generally, you know, hire a realtor to help them market the house and sell it. Um, private equity firms always hire an investment banker to sell their companies. They're the world's most sophisticated asset class. There's some message there that yes. they are always going to do that. Now, sometimes it's the rewarding investment bankers because they want new deal flow from those investment bankers, but there, there still is a reason. They want someone to manage the competitive tension. They want someone to manage. You know the the overall process. I'll tell you where I think bankers do add value. Oftentimes, they'll know things that the general broader public doesn't. Hey, this firm has a new fund. They haven't put any money to work in two years. And this is the third time they're coming in trying to buy something and they don't want it. This time, they're going to stretch because they can't go back to the well third time in a <laughs> row without getting a deal in the third year of their fund that they haven't put any money to work. And and so sometimes they know that what I'll call the the non-public information about the current position of a fund or, hey, this guy spent a ton, they came in second twice. I know they're going to be top dollar on this one cuz they've already done all the work. They'll know that information and that's where the value comes. Having said that, I will say that I have worked with entrepreneurs who didn't want to hire a banker and I'm okay with that. Generally when you know who the right buyer is, yeah. you know, and so if you can say, look, I this firm buys companies in my here's the 3 PE firms that are active in my space and I know they're the right buyer, you know, and I and so I have a feeling You know, then I I personally can overlook them not hiring a banker when they they believe they know who that buyer is. Generally, I tell people hire a a banker because they'll know that market intelligence that is not public information. And if you truly don't, if you don't know who the buyer is, you need a banker. You don't pick up the phone and say, yep, you're my buyer. You know when somebody calls you you need a competitive tension and process you need to find a banker have a bake off to get the right banker and then you need to to use a banker and market it but if you know who the buyer is i see entrepreneurs you know not hire bankers yeah i see it happen
0: quite a lot through strategic partnerships and things like that where it's a natural transition into that but but i agree i think i found the value with bankers particularly what you said you know they know you know, if if there's a fund that hasn't bought anything, and there's management fees, and all these guys are taking a million quid home each year, and they haven't bought anything for two or three years, those institutional investors don't get very happy. And I've no. I've been the guy, but you've been the guy who's presented it at the the AGM. Yeah, <laughs> right. It's not fun, right? If you're not if you're not active. So I do love that distinction as well. All right. Well, listen, Adam, we are at time. Um, I'm going to just plug your books again because they are awesome. So private equity playbook, exit strategy playbook, and you've got a third book coming out. Do you want to talk about that, or is that? Incognito for now? No, it's not incognito.
1: It's called Empire Builder. It's gonna be out later on this fall. And it's the journey from zero to a billion. That's- oh, wow, that's that, a big that, journey that then. all around. Here's the toolkit you need as an entrepreneur to go from zero to a billion. Is, is it the
0: same guy- size or no? Is it like, it's gonna be bigger? <laughs> <laughs>
1: you know, it's a little bigger, but in today's world, books are for entertainment. They have to be a certain length, you know, and, and that, that, that that's controlled by publishers. But it's all my books started as seminars and lectures. And you know, so I I do a two I did a two-day Empire Builder seminar. I'm doing another one this fall. And this book is based on a two-day seminar that I, I've been giving, you know, and it's really it's the journey from zero to a billion, how to get out of the gates how to perfect the small company. Maybe you already own a bigger company, but it's how to then unpeel the the onion layers and get back to building a really high performing small business. And then how do we scale? And that's what Empire Builder is about. It'll, it'll be out later on this fall um, and it'll be available awesome. anywhere, in, in any format you want.
0: Love it. Well, listen, mate, it's been great to connect. As I said, um, enjoyed your books and enjoy geeking out with another PE guy. It's been fun. Where can people uh, reach out to you if they want to get in touch, get any more information?
1: I'm on LinkedIn. Adam Coffee, C-O-F-F-E-Y. You get that right. Go on LinkedIn. You'll you'll find me. You know, and uh, you'll find me there or at AdamECoffee.com. Uh, you know, you, people can find me there. I'm around, and Perfect. and I love engaging with people. I'm I'm very responsive on, on LinkedIn and uh, love love interacting with people who've read my books or who've shared you know part of the journey.
0: Awesome. Well, listen, you've shared a lot of value here today, Adam. It's been awesome having you on the show at last. I'm sure we'll bump into each other in this crazy world of entrepreneurship and exits, but uh, just want to wish you all the very best with the upcoming book launch. And just want to thank you on behalf of the scale up listeners today. Thank you, Nick. Thank you to all your listeners. Hey, thank you for listening to this episode of scale up with Nick Bradley. or to find out how you can get more help in scaling up your business and your life, click the link in the show notes now to learn about our coaching, mentoring, and mastermind programs. See you soon.